0: The year is 1962. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year.
1: Welcome to My Marvelous Year, a comic book reading club where a comic book expert, Dave, and a Marvel newcomer, me, cover all the essential Marvel stories from its origins to today. This episode will be covering the, the tail end of 1961 and 1962. If this is your first episode of My Marvelous Year, I'd recommend going back and listening to our episode zero, which will lay out the premise of the show. But I'll give an elevator pitch real quick. At ComicBookHerald.com, which Dave is the editor-in-chief of, there's a list called My Marvelous Year, which breaks down the 10 most essential stories from each year of Marvel history that you need to read if you want to break into this huge, crazy universe of comics. All these comics are available on Marvel's comic book app, Marvel Unlimited, which works great on tablets and computers and even smartphones. It's not the worst way to read comics. Well, it might be the worst way, but it's doable. We're going to be discussing all these stories here on the show, and these episodes will aim to be entertaining and informative to people reading along week by week, as well as those who might just listen along without reading. So, that being said, let's jump into it.
0: That's right. Thanks, Zach. So, we've got our first comic story here for the Marvel Year One is Fantastic Four Number one. Now, this is the only issue we're going to discuss. The only superhero issue, we should say, that is going to be, um, released in 1961. It was in November 1961. Stan Lee, the writer and artist Jack Kirby came together to release Fantastic Four number one now there's a lot of historical context around kind of how this issue came out i'm going to go right into what actually happens in the issue i think and then we can kind of talk about it as we go the impetus for you know how fantastic four number one came to be because it's not the first marvel comic ever released even though it is the launch of essentially what would become known as the the marvel superhero universe so in fantastic four number one the first nine pages are they throw you right into the action, essentially. Uh, it does not begin, contrary to my expectation, even having read it a few times, with their origin. Nope. It begins with Reed Richards, Dr. Reed Richards, uh, shoots out a flare gun, and the team proceeds to basically wreak havoc responding to this flare gun.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they all go wild, and they all they all need to use their powers in the most extravagant way possible to immediately... Uh, establish them, I guess, or establish them for the reader. But the way that they use them really, rem- like S- Sue Storm, goes invisible, which is her power. invisible Invisigirl, Invisible Girl.
0: She is Invisible Girl at this point, not yet an Invisible Woman.
1: Okay, right. Invisible Girl. She is just having tea with a friend and vanishes when she sees the signal, which is unnecessary. She could just leave, um, and then <laughs> with any excuse, <laughs> she makes her way to a taxi cab, barreling over. I counted. um Barreling over seven people on the sidewalk are knocked over by her rushing down the sidewalk, invisible, and then terrifies a cat- taxi cab driver. Right. Yeah. And then Johnny Storm, who's working on his own hot rod, sees. I love the, this one. I sees, love this one. It's very good. Yeah. He sees that <laughs> he sees that the the flare has gone off, and flies off into the sky, leaving his car like a melted pile of slag behind him, just completely destroying the car that he was tuning up in the moment
0: well and he makes a point of saying to the the man that he's working on the car with he's like there's only one thing i love more than hot rods and it's kind of setting up like what maybe you're like oh women johnny or like you know some sort of corny joke <laughs> no, between melting two guys. Hot rods. <laughs> yeah and then no he's like it's this the fantastic four flare and then he burns his car which is still his second most loved thing like johnny <laughs> there's a door there's a door giant just go yeah. through
1: it and the thing i think the thing is trying on clothes he sees the signal and rips off his clothes to reveal it like a giant saggy diaper um <laughs> he looks absurd in these these original ones mm-hmm. um yeah but and then I, I don't remember if he i think he says something about like you know like why did they make doors like this doorways so they, he, he complains about the size of doors and then burst off
0: because he's an enormous rock-shaped uh monster figure yeah he does he does also get um attacked by police for like barreling out into the street and again (laughs) i I would really like to point out this is all just basically in response to a text (laughs) like like reed richards texted the team and they just (laughs) they just go nuts
1: that's true and nothing's like johnny storm gets um they scramble a bunch of fighter jets to intercept johnny storm Mm -hmm. human torch and uh he melts a few of them mid-air, causing the, the, the pilots to have to parachute, and then they shoot a nuclear warhead at him, presumably over in New York City which I think um, Reed Richards intercepts with his long, stretchy arms and just tosses into the, the bay. So Fortunately,
0: Reed catches the nuke, which yeah, cr- crisis is very, averted, very good of him.
1: It's just underwater now.
0: The misunderstanding of of nuclear missiles will be a consistent theme throughout the Marvel Silver Age. and Just
1: science in general.
0: <laughs> just science in general, right, in in some very unintentionally, um, very, very funny ways. I, so I just referenced, this is Marvel's Silver Age, right? This is the start of... Of what is defined in comic book history as the Silver Age, and basically we can we can for all intents and purposes say that that begins for Marvel with this issue of Fantastic Four. The mm-hmm. the separations for those of you who are a little bit newer to comics, you know, you have the Golden Age, which is basically the um, the launch of superhero comics and and really comics as like a popular medium, which starts with Action Comics number one in 1939 with with the debut of Superman from DC Comics. You also have Marvel as uh, Timely Comics at that same time, at that same year, released an issue called Marvel Comics Number no. 1. Shortly thereafter, became Marvel Mystery Comics, and that's where you get the debut of their Golden Age superheroes like the original Human Torch and Namor. But we'll save some of that detail for another time. The important thing here is the Silver Age is essentially you have America and, and the world at large goes through World War II. They come out through the 50s, and you get all these um, comic book scares, basically of, you know, these horror comics and these these violent, violent things are damaging the kids. Think of the kids. Yep. And that's where you get Frederick Wortham and his whole seduction of the innocent. And basically, like, comics become kind of tied into the McCarthyism scare tactics, and mm-hmm. they don't really get popular again until superheroes start to make a return in the 60s. So that's like History in brief. In brief, <laughs> there's there's a what is that seduction of the innocent you mentioned? What is that? So seduction of the innocent is Dr. Frederick Wortham's book that I think outlines my understanding. Is basically this is his like his testimony about all the damages that comics are doing oh, to the
1: kids. Oh yeah, I've read about this because you know, and it inferred that you know Batman and Robin were a gay couple, right? And uh-huh. you know, encouraging degeneracy among children, among other things. Right,
0: and that's it, and that's where a lot of that like comes from—the Batman and Robin, you know, being gay. But it, were them saying it as like, you know, this obvious example of of you know um, what would be the word like damaging relationships that mm-hmm. a kid could aspire to. When it's like, well, or they're just whatever. I'm not going to go into Batman and Robin <laughs> in, in the course of a Marvel podcast. But yes, he, that's what okay. superheroes yeah. are coming out of. They get to. Really like the late 50s, DC starts to turn around again. So they have The Flash, um, the debut of Barry Allen comes back, I think is probably what most historians, comic book historians would consider like the official debut of of the Silver Age. Um, Marvel at the time, they're just kind of chasing trends still. They're pumping out like five comics a month. They are doing like horror books, with a lot of monsters from good old Jack Kirby. This is a good yeah. point
1: of... Uh- well, one Jack Kirby's monsters are, I think, terrible. I I come to love his art over the course <laughs> of this year, but his monsters—they all look, um, they all look like they have big, like gasping mouths, like fish pulled out of water, or like I don't know, big dead-eyed mole creatures. Like they're just lumpy, and I I'm not a fan, but I I do like Jack Kirby's art a lot this year.
0: Well, and that's it, Kirby's interesting because he's coming from so. Jack Kirby is one of the biggest comic artists of all time. He's one of the best creators. I think the medium, yeah, of probably, honestly, he's probably the single greatest creator the medium has ever seen. Um, he, he's called King Kirby by comics fans for good reason. And he's the artist yep. who would partner with Stan Lee and also co-plot, or in some cases it seems just straight up plot. A vast majority of these comics we're going to talk about, you know, Fantastic Four included. But yes, I I think coming out of the fifties, he's you know he's making a living. Like that's one thing to think about too. Is like comics aren't this lucrative field in the late fifties. You know, he's just this is what he does. He's been doing it since he created Captain America with Joe Simon in nineteen forty one. He's been doing it for a very long time at this point. You know, twenty years. And uh, I
1: feel like this is this is the year we're going to watch him really hit his stride. Yeah, because we've read some Jack Kirby in the past is older stuff right i've read it yeah this this is where i feel he hits a stride. i i wanted to bring up we were talking about how marvel was mostly westerns and mm-hmm. monster stories before this i i took a glance marvel unlimited you can sort by year and i wanted to see what they were publishing in the year previous to sure. this um so 1961 leading up to the fantastic four it's a lot it's a, a lot of horror comics and a lot of monster comics and i i have a list here of every monster that they, they listed just on the covers just of 1961. Uh, I'd, I'd like to read here: Electro, Glip, Colossus, Thor, Goom, Vandoom, Metallo, Gorgola Gugam, Rambu, Kra, X, the Thing that Lived, the Terrible Totem, Tor, the Green Thing, Manu, Troll, Clag. Moomba, Brutu, Monsterosa, Fing-Fang-Foom, Serpo, Oog, and Tim I just, just an insane list of
0: <laughs> of names. Manu is due for a return without question. I, one interesting <laughs> thing in that is how many of those names... Uh,
1: do you recognize those well, names?
0: Well, that's what I was going to say is some of those names, like Fing-Fang-Foom has has stayed around as a marvel villain yeah. oh, okay. dragon wearing purple shorts he's most famously i think in the 2000s has a role in, in next wave which is one of my favorite comics of the era um but otherwise some of those are just names like electro well no that's not the spider-man villain <laughs> you know
1: well i mean they also have thor which is not the the thor work is I'm it two r's though <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, I can't believe you know that. That's... I, I read that list. I was cracking up like reading through this list of just increasingly absurd sounding games.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's pretty wild. But yeah, that's, that's really right. good context for like, okay, that's what Marvel's coming out of. Um, as as they start putting together Fantastic Four and a lot of the the details around like what prompted Stan Lee to to do this comic are kind of romanticized now and there's there's a nostalgia to them there's also like I think a lot of creative credit debate frankly as to who was more behind the creation of the team Fantastic Four um, Stan Lee or Jack Kirby and we'll see there, there. Basically, anytime kind of Stanley's involved in the creation of a hero here in the Marvel Age, with either Kirby or, for example, artist Steve Ditko, there are questions about like who is actually doing the heavy lifting in that creation. I would say, for yeah. our purposes, like as Marvel fans, one, it's just it's really important to give the artist credit because too often it doesn't go to them and they they get you know thrown away in kind of the the pop culture mainstream understanding. Um, if nothing else,
1: the design is so important to these yes. characters and immediately makes them iconic or not. I mean, some of those golden age superheroes just look so cookie cutter. And, you know, maybe it's because I know what Thor looks like, and he seems iconic now, but he just shows up looking immediately. Yeah, just just immediately iconic. Yeah, let, let's keep breaking down Fantastic okay, Four. Okay, right.
0: So historical tangent aside, Fantastic Four. So the team assembles, and then once they assemble, we actually get their origins. So they flash back now to mm-hmm. uh, basically <laughs> the team kind of up and deciding they need to steal a spaceship, which is of Doctor Richards' design, uh, because they gotta beat they gotta beat the Reds into space. Gotta beat those communists, right? So space race history is at ev- at the front of everyone's mind, and the Fantastic Four mm-hmm. are, like listen, we can't be beat. And and literally, it's just like, there's no broader imperative than being first, <laughs> as far as I can tell.
1: And this was the year that Americans got beat to space. Yes. So there's there's a little bit of sour grapes here.
0: Definitely. And like, so Sue Storm too, she pressures, because Ben Grimm is, before they go into space, he's kind of like, I don't really want to do this. This is a bad idea in, in so many words. And Sue Storm's basically like peer pressures him into making a yeah, flight it, and calls him a coward.
1: <laughs> she just says like, we can't let the commies beat us. Are you a coward? And he immediately says, I'm no coward. I'll, I'll pilot your spaceship.
0: They're very manipulative. So they steal their spaceship, basically like it's an unlocked bike, which is fantastic. And they ride up into space. And this is where we get the classic Fantastic Four origin. They shoot into space. Bengram's piloting the spaceship. But then all of a sudden Reed Richards did not plan for or shield the for Cosmic Rays, the team is bombarded by Cosmic Rays.
1: Which Ben Grimm actually brings up, before they even leave ground, when he's arguing against going to space, he, mentions he says that. something like, we don't know the effects of Cosmic Rays, and Reed Richards, like, bah.
0: Yeah. I, I One thing that consistently comes out, in, well, really in the 60s as a whole, but especially in this first year, in 1962, is Reed Richards makes a lot of mistakes. And he is he is pretty quickly characterized as the smartest Guy in the room and as the leader of the team, you know, he's like the kind of the 50s classic like father figure male, you know, like dominant presence. Um, He's always got a cigar in his hands and he's, you know, he kind of talks down to Sue as his little fiance Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, Actually, less so in 1962 than than he will. But yeah, here it's just like he's he's arrogant and he's wrong. And it's it's important to note because that has been played with, I think, very interestingly throughout Fantastic Four comics. Um, and he, you know, pretty quickly as the as the team progresses, like he feels guilt over that. He caused. Ben's transformation, which is what happens next, the team crash lands very smoothly. I might add. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's autopilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, autopilot's fantastic because Reed's a genius, and uh, they land, and and all of a sudden they start discovering their powers, and this is where.
1: Yeah, just in case someone someone has not read this, oh yeah, this for the first time. Let, let's actually go over this.
0: Yes. So okay. So discovering their powers, basically, the first thing they see is uh, Sue starts disappearing before their eyes and it's kind of interesting like there's a horror element that is still at play definitely in these scenes Mm -hmm. um it's one thing that actually like the uh the really really negatively reviewed fantastic four movie that came out in i want to say 2015 actually did kind of well where it's like body horror you know it's like these transformations are kind of gruesome um and you have so sue disappears they don't know that she's even still there initially, and she starts talking, yep. and they realize she's turned invisible. Um, I think next, I think Johnny bursts into flame. Yep, and he's the Human Torch, right? And then you yep. get Reed. Oh, and,
1: uh, Johnny and Sue are brothers. I don't know, brother and sister. Yes, I don't know if we mentioned. Yes, that. Okay. So
0: Johnny. Johnny is Sue's younger brother, which is the only reason he comes along. He came along.
1: along. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you, right. So okay, let's call it out. So Reed Richards is engaged, I believe, already at this point to yep. Sue Storm. Uh, which is the only reason she goes along. Just
1: my fiance is right. going to space, not without me. You, you follow
0: your fiance even into space. And uh, Johnny Storm is her brother. And then Ben Grimm is the best friend of Reed Richards, their college roommates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so then Reed starts developing stretching powers, basically. And, uh, and then from there, you get the most gruesome transformation, which is Ben Grimm transforming into this monstrous, and like Sue Storm says, some kind of thing, which is it just happened like it just happened and (laughs) sue's reaction is so mean
1: (laughs) well i i was just thinking about the fact that you know they they all get named and it's like oh johnny you you lit on fire i guess you'll be called the human torch sue you went invisible invisible girl Mm -hmm. Reed, having the ego i'll be mr fantastic uh, ben, you're the thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's that, not. Super I mean, nice. he gets short shrifted in both powers and the way that they label him.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. They all get their powers, and then basically we come back to present day, where the team is then set up essentially for their first mission. Um, which, honestly, once Reed starts explaining, it doesn't seem nearly as urgent as as his flair and the team's reaction may be indicated. But basically, yeah. the the impetus here is they go to uh, Monster Isle, is where they wind up visiting. And, you know, I think it's because
1: it's because like a bunch of nuclear power plants have been sucked underground by some huge monster. And that's right. Reed calculated that they were living on Monster Isle.
0: Yes. Yes. So all these power plants are disappearing. Um, And again, like they're coming out of the monster comic craze. So it's a it's a really good opportunity to continue drawing jumbo monsters. You have that iconic Fantastic Four number one cover. Of the big monster coming out of the ground and, and fighting the team. Uh, he doesn't, mm-hmm. that, that monster does technically make an appearance, but he's not the big bad here. Really. It is the mole man that they find down in the subterranean depths. And right. he is actually one thing I found interesting about him and about the villains of the, of 1962 of Marvel year one is he's actually very sympathetic. Um, it's easy to feel badly for this character because he is bullied essentially for looking weird and being weird into Mm -hmm. into this layer now he reacts badly right it's kind of you know i think today we have a lot of like um you know the nerd scorned and like there are there are healthier ways to react to this than than taking monsters and trying (laughs) to a
1: journey to the center of the earth yes become master of monsters yeah
0: exactly exactly um but he he is you know he's characterized he has feelings
1: and emotions he's this yeah, short guy with a big, big nose and uh, and like 3D glasses that kind of look like wraparound 3D glasses and an awesome cowl and cape. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Good stuff.
1: Yeah, his uh, his situation isn't that dis- different from the things, right? I yeah, mean, he's right. he's scorned for his looks, but he decides to go underground, literally.
0: Yeah, and one thing I one thing I love about the thing in 1962 that really surprised me when we were doing. Uh, the My Marvelous Year Reading Club the first time, and I was I was really reading Fantastic Four for the first time, is Ben is bitter throughout, like, really all of 1962 oh, yeah. and maybe beyond. But he's just, he's been transformed. And I think it's something that if you know the Fantastic Four in 2018, you know, the year we're recording this, Ben, you, you, you kind of understand that he accepts being the thing and that in some way he kind of relishes being heroic and strong. But when he's just transformed here in this first year, he's... He's so bitter about it, and I think understandably.
1: Oh, it's funny because that's that's my perception of the thing. Not having read that much Fantastic Four, my perception is that he's always kind of uh, bitter about it. But it'll be interesting, I guess, to see that change if he, uh, you know, becomes accepting over time.
0: Yeah, and I think it's more just like. He's not necessarily resigned to it at this point because it just happened. It's fresh. Definitely. Right. And and maybe he shouldn't even be. So anyway, the issue basically concludes with the mole man displaying some incredible judo skills.
1: (laughs) He mentions that he has since he spent so much time underground, he has developed the powers of a mole and a bat,
0: (laughs) whatever that means.
1: And then he throws he throws Reed Richards a fighting stick. And then immediately disarms him with his mole-like reflexes. It's like the
0: gladiator Q-tips. Like he just tosses him yeah. one just to show off. It's awesome.
1: And then immediately knocks it out of his hands. Yeah. yeah. And then I, they, they all get into a kind of a, a standard brawl. They win. The cave starts to collapse. And Reed Richards is carrying the mole man who's knocked out mm-hmm. until they get out of the cave. And all of a sudden the mole man isn't with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think Sue asks, where's the mole man? And Reed just says, oh, I just left him behind. <laughs> Which just like the world will be better off if the you know the cave in just collapses with him still down there. Well, and
0: it's important too, like, the, so it not only does it cave in, but the island then explodes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that's um, yeah. that's one thing that actually happens a few times throughout 1962. And it's like, I think Stan and Jack in this case, like, they didn't know this thing was going to carry on, they didn't know Monster Island would be a the impetus for a marvel event in 2017 <laughs> you know monsters unleashed like uh-huh. they had no I sense know, of these things i didn't know that and okay. neither did most people marvel was trying to sell it yeah to. but um <laughs> anyway the island explodes and and obviously that is not actually the end of the mole man and monster isle but they this was fantastic four number one they're you know for all intents and purposes there might not have been a number two of course there was a lot of really good response
1: yeah, I mean, that that's the real thing with, like, Marvel up until this point, what I've seen is that they really just, like, jump from one title to the next, just kept, like, hopping characters. And this is really where they start kind of planting their flag in one series and developing it over the course of time. Because, I mean, it, this is a fun issue, but it's not great. And even even over the course of this year, Fantastic Four gets considerably better. You know, they nail down the artwork. They they kind of find a consistent model for each of these characters, yeah. Jack Kirby does. And they start telling more interesting stories and developing their personalities. And, you know, you, you kind of need to invest in these characters. You need to write more than one issue to, to really flesh them out. And this is where they, I think, really start to do that.
0: For sure. I think it, there's a lot of interest in Origins amongst comic book fans. and We're going to talk about a whole bunch of them here in these early years of My Marvelous Year. But it, typically, yep. generally speaking, the origin story itself isn't the best comic, usually, by far. Um, so yeah. I would say as far as Origins go, Fantastic Four number one is very good it's it's very unintentionally funny and again a lot of that's just like mm-hmm. it's dated and it's it's trying something that really hadn't been done by the you know especially by this publisher it lays out the dynamics pretty well it would fantastic four will get a lot better i would say 1962 is one of the weaker yeah, years for sure. just because it's laying all the groundwork and setting things up um but again like i you know i've read the origins of of batman of superman right of all the things that came you know in the 40s and it's like Action Comics number one is very similar. It's kind of funny. Um, it's actually like tackles some interesting things, but it's not what Superman would be. It, you know, there are much better issues.
1: Um, you want to jump into the next one? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So next we read Amazing Adult Fantasy number seven. And I think you yeah, put this did. on the list just to um have us dip our toes into a little bit of what else Marvel was doing besides superhero comics at the time. Is that right?
0: That that's one hundred percent it. So yeah, when I made the list initially. Um, for the Comic Hero Club, it, this is entirely to cover honestly a lot of the history we already talked about, which is just to be like these are the types of stories they were kicking out that weren't superhero, and yeah. this issue comes out the same month as Fantastic Four number one.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I've i read some of the older the the older Marvel comics from before this where they were doing five or six stories per issue. You know, mm-hmm. and it was a genre smorgasbord. This one I feel like this is a pivot for Stanley where he wants to tell stories for an, a slightly older audience he's not aiming for that the 10-year-old boy quite so hard and clearly i think is influenced by the twilight zone being incredibly popular at the time because these are these are all very reminiscent of the twilight zone yeah the tagline of amazing adult fantasy is the magazine that respects your intelligence. Yeah, kinda kinda puts right on front street what they're what they're going for.
0: And they would surely thereafter rebrand this to just amazing fantasy mm-hmm. because as, as Stan writes in what was not yet a soapbox, but in an editorial note, they had a lot of teenagers writing in that it made them feel kind of uncomfortable to buy a magazine for adults. Oh, I thought you
1: were <laughs> <laughs> that is that is very precious. I, I thought yeah. you were gonna say that people would um like protest just against the name because you know adult fantasy sounds a little salacious.
0: Right, I've driven by that on the highway and it's yeah. not. <laughs> it's not just monster stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs>
1: yeah, so these are all definitely twilight zone inspired. There's five stories, they five or six pages long and they just hinge on a small little twist like the man who is running around trying to get people to believe him that an alien invasion is coming. He turns out to be the actual alien from the invasion, but he bonked his head and has amnesia. Or the story about a, a witch trial where a woman was going to be burned for being a witch, but there's some man who came up and vouched for her and got her off the hook. And then he hops on a broom and he's the witch, and that's that's the entire twist of it. Um, they're pretty fun. They're they're they go by quick. They're they're just like small little like one concept stories that um, that go down pretty easy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed these.
0: Yeah, they're, I would say it's fun to read about an issue. Yeah, this, this is
1: a good batch. Like three out of five of these were like very good and the other two were fine.
0: Yeah, right. Like you don't need to read all of amazing adult fantasy, certainly by any measure. Um, But it is kind of fun to see these types of stories. Again, it's very common in like the non-superhero genre at the time. Just these like short yep. twist-based things that are they're not even like morality tales more often than not. Like it's hard to even take away necessarily. Like sometimes it's very obvious, like don't be a crook or you'll wind up in a weird dimension as a flat figure <laughs> or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, a lot of times it's just like, it's a twist.
1: They're just twists. Yeah. Here's a setup and there's the twist. It's very
0: early Shyamalan. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. So next uh, on the list. Oh, and,
1: and just, it's, I think it's worth mentioning 100% outside of any kind of Marvel continuity. Yes.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, totally. I think uh, there is like, you'll find like names or characters that maybe have been plumbed from the depths in some of these stories over time. Like Groot is in one of those. I remember. I I, I wish I remembered offhand.
1: I think Groot actually was introduced like before any of the rest of these. I think Groot was like 1961.
0: Yeah, like he comes out as a monster, like he's a total monster comic villain. Um, the original Groot, and he's talking and terrorizing people. But anyway, he's not the Groot you'll come to know in Guardians of the Galaxy. That said, like yeah, some writers yeah. have played with that, that origin in some of their, okay. like, their tales. Cool, cool. So continuing on with 1962, we have Fantastic Four, number two, came out in January. And this is the introduction of the Skrulls, who are a big uh, spacefaring race in the Marvel universe. They are shape-shifting green. They are green in their natural Looks, but they can shapeshift and and change their form into basically anyone. They can be just about anything. Um, but yeah, so the scrolls are basically the issue opens with Fantastic Four um, again wreaking havoc on town, which actually doesn't seem <laughs> out of character given <laughs> given number one. But uh, in this yep. case, they're being framed. So you have the Thing wrecks a tower, Sue steals a diamond, Johnny melts a statue, <laughs> which is hilarious to me that that's. He's just like, melt.
1: He's I mean, he's doing he's doing the good work melting Confederate statues.
0: Is it? Conv- yeah, sure, right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know.
1: It, it, it's like it's definitely like a Civil War era statue.
0: Early, mm-hmm. early protesting uh, scroll potentially. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, and then you have uh, Reed Richards like shuts off the power or something. Okay,
1: can we talk? Can we pause on that one for a second? <laughs> Reed Richards is the least like destructive. He he just reaches his arm into a power plant and flips the lever to turn the power off for the city while a man watches. There's a man watching yeah. saying something like, you know, oh no, the lever to the city's power. It seems presumably like presumably he he leaves and then the man could walk over and turn it back on. But <laughs> right. let's not get bogged down with that. Right.
0: Yeah. It does seem like that scroll was struggling for something to do. Um, but <sighs> yeah, the quick reveal is these are all scrolls. They're all aliens. They're trying to frame the Fantastic Four and get them in trouble. And it works. Uh, so the Fantastic Four are pretty shortly thereafter arrested by the military and they are imprisoned. I had actually forgotten that this this section of the comic existed, but the four are thrown into like a military prison and basically mm-hmm. all four of them then stage a jailbreak um, of yep. their own accord. So this is something that I typically associate with like Dr. Doom, who will come later, you know, putting them <laughs> each in a room and in an elaborate trap. In this case, it's just like getting a feel for the team's powers and how they would each break out of a, you know, a room with no doors, right? It's like each of them finding a way to do that.
1: These these rooms are really ridiculous because it's like Johnny Storm's room is as best as covered and without any airflow. But then there's just a hole in the wall where they are coming in. Yes. And right. Reed's Richards is built without cracks so that he can't slide out. But then he just finds a crack. And the things is just ultra reinforced because he's super strong but he's still strong enough to break free. Like all the rooms are suited to their powers, but half-assed like, yeah. And and then Sue Storm, she just goes invisible and they go, Oh, where'd she go? And they open the door and that's it. So they just, they don't do the basics to trap them.
0: Yeah. It's, it's easy escapes, but basically they get out and then they figure, okay, we've got somebody impersonating us. We need to stop these people. Uh, Johnny, I think pretends to be, One of the Skrulls, I want to say, to draw out the rest of them. Double agent, yeah. Yeah. And that gets the Skrulls out, they fight, they take them down, they say, take us to our leader, essentially, Um, once Mm -hmm. they have the Skrulls trapped. And then the Fantastic Four go up to the Skrull mothership to ask them to leave. And this is fantastic. So they come up as the four. And basically they say, well, these Skrulls were impersonating us, so we'll pretend now to be the Skrulls, which is clever. Mm -hmm. Uh, They show the Skrull leaders, you know, basically they say, one, the Fantastic Four can't be defeated, so don't even try. Stop stop your invasion. Fantastic Four here, they'll take you down. And then they show them copies of Marvel Comics journey into mystery and strange (laughs) tales to show them the sorts of monsters that inhabit earth and that the scrolls should be afraid of it is so meta and so great
1: they're drawing straight from older comics right yeah
0: these are these are total yep. Kirby monsters. And they're like,
1: I mean, you can tell because they're lumpy, shapeless weirdos. But
0: yes, I love the inclusion of Marvel <laughs> Comics within Marvel Comics. It's one yeah, of my favorite things. Um, later in Fantastic Four, you get Johnny Storm uh, reading an issue of Incredible Hulk. And then he makes a joke about, you know, thing looking like a monster. And, and Ben takes great offense to this.
1: Sure. Yeah, they, they use it as kind of a, a subtle cross marketing or well,
0: not so subtle. Yeah. But. It doesn't make any sense because it's like well they can't actually have the comics of themselves. <laughs> like it's it's like too right. meta yeah. for their own good, but it's really fun.
1: Yeah, no, it's funny.
0: So the scroll the scroll leaders are like, yeah, we're out of here. Um the Fantastic Four go back to Earth and at this point things get a little wonky because all of a sudden they now have 3 scru- scrolls to deal with and you may remember there are 4 scrolls because they are impersonating the fantastic 4 mm-hmm. so the narrative gets kind that. of lost they lose a scroll and this has been played with throughout uh, comics history actually like what happened to the fourth scroll there's all sorts when
1: when definitely what happened was just like stanley forgot Oh, right. Like yes. there's no, there's no way this was a plot point. This was just Stanley f- or Stanley or Jack Kirby forgot to include all four.
0: Yeah. And you get a lot of fun things like that in, in Marvel's first year, like Spider-Man with or without a hyphen, you get Bruce Banner called Bob Banner, like things that writers have since <laughs> retcon, which is literally just like they couldn't stand, couldn't remember whoever was doing it. Couldn't remember. Um,
1: Sometimes within the issue, he forgets the continuity.
0: Yeah, right. Totally. And it's, you know, you're turning these out fast and for the first time. Um, but so the way they deal with the remaining scrolls is, you know, they're kind of like the scrolls are scared and they're like, listen, we won't hurt a fly. Like, don't, don't do anything to us, please. Like we'll live our existence peacefully. And Reed's like, fine. And he hypnotizes them into, which is the, I'm going to say the first and last time Reed is like a master of hypnosis. But- he just mentions it like it's a power he has. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, he hypnotizes them into staying as cows on Earth mm-hmm. for yep. the remainder of their existence. So we have three scroll cows grazing peacefully out somewhere in America. And these Skrull burgers, I should point yep. out, yep. have become a plot point uh, throughout Marvel Comics history. So oh, I
1: was about to make that joke, but that's a thing. Oh, no, right. that
0: gets that gets played with <laughs> in the 90s. Yes. Sorry, Zach. Okay. That's, that's coming.
1: Right. <laughs> Man, I could write these. All right. All right, well, uh, next up we read... We read Incredible Hulk number one, which I, well, let, let's get into it because I was a little lukewarm on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, it, it has a big splash page of the Hulk who is not quite what he becomes. Is Jack Kirby writing or drawing this one? Yeah, this, this is Stanley, Stanley and Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby. Yep. Okay. I don't think the art is quite up to Jack Kirby's uh, standard for the rest of the year for this one. The Hulk is not particularly iconic looking here. He's um, He's gray. For one, he has this like greasy black hair that just lays flat on his head. And then what is really ridiculous is that the Hulk is basically the size of maybe as big as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like he's he's big, but he's not that big. Like mm-hmm. he just turns mm-hmm. kinda muscly when he turns into the Hulk. So
0: Yeah, he's not a giant I, I, here.
1: No, no, he's definitely not. And he's not even like I mean he's like six foot one, like and 230 pounds like he's a big muscly guy but he's not a he's not the you know big hulking monster uh, he becomes um so it starts out it has a page that says alone in the desert stands the most awesome weapon ever created by man the incredible g-bomb and the shot here is of it looks like a big tower i guess it's supposed to be a bomb it looks like this big like 30 or 40 foot tower and i'm gonna try to say this without having to put an explicit tag on this it's it's very phallic. Did you notice this?
0: Uh, I didn't. I didn't, but I okay. don't doubt I, it. <laughs> I, I read that
1: description to my wife. I, I read that, uh, you know, the most awesome weapon ever created by man. And then I just showed her the page and she immediately cracked up because <laughs> it is so clearly yeah. supposed to be a penis. I, I don't know if it's supposed to be, but it is 100% how it reads. And I don't know if that was intentional or Freudian or anyway. <laughs> um So it. It starts out, um, we're on an army base where they're testing the G-bomb, which is like the next wave of nuclear weapons. And inside the base is um, is Bruce, Dr. Bruce Banner, who's the lead scientist on this, being yelled at by Thunderbolt Ross, who's the brass who's telling the, the weakling scientist to grow a pear and hurry up and test the thing. Caution be damned. For some reason, Thunderbolt Ross, what, what's his actual first name? So I don't have to keep calling him that.
0: General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross.
1: Okay, I'll just call him General Ross. General Ross's daughter is on base, Betty Ross, and she's just there to, like, I don't know, humiliate her father in front of his subordinates, just like he, <laughs> <laughs> he's just issuing commands to his underlings, and she just is like, Daddy, cool it.
0: It does sum up, basically, the the rest of hulk's existence or bruce banners more specifically in that mm-hmm. you got general ross is mad at him and yelling at him bruce is kind of not totally sure how to deal with that he's nervous and unsure and trying to do science things and then you've got betty in the middle you know trying to play peacemaker between the man she grows to love and her father
1: i think that's actually probably the most interesting thing that this issue sets up that it doesn't even really deal with that much that's probably the most interesting dynamic that gets set up of you know that that his love interest is also the daughter of his enemy, or the person who's out hunting him. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Banner is just kind of this normal scientist guy. He has an assistant, Igor, <laughs> just to just to immediately telegraph that this guy is nefarious. Subtle. Who keeps keeps needling him for his Doctor Banner's notes for the the G bomb, which Doctor Banner won't give up. They they start the timer on the bomb, and then a teenager dri- start, drives his convertible into the testing ground. Uh, Dr. Banner personally runs out into the desert to stop this teenager who has just parked out by the bomb and is playing harmonica
0: (laughs) on a dare. This is good old Rick Jones, who will, of course, be uh, a recurring character in some really interesting and important ways. But he's just playing harmonica in a bomb test site, like on a dare, right? He's
1: he's no coward. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. You proved it, Rick. Good job.
1: Yeah. So uh, Dr. Banner runs out. He throws uh, Rick Jones into into a ditch just as the G-bomb goes off and blasts him with gamma radiation. I actually, I think the art in this one is just so-so, but the shot of Dr. Banner getting bathed in green radiation is pretty cool, just mm-hmm. the way that uh, Kirby draws that. He wakes up inside the base. Rick Jones has dragged him in. He comes to, he's under observation, like, and he's kind of locked up by the military. The sun goes down, and all of a sudden he starts transforming, which is starts showing that the hulk's transformation i guess initially I, I know this doesn't keep going is based on like sunset sunrise so yeah. at night he turns into the hulk and in the morning he turns back you know just like having wear muscles and he yeah he turns into the hulk he escapes rick jones tags along
0: rick feels a little guilty he's like all right i i, I should yeah you saved this
1: guy. me i should yeah yeah keep an eye on you let's see banner goes back to his house finds Igor trying to like pilfer his
0: notes. Who knew Igor was going to turn out bad? I really, really right. couldn't have seen that coming. He's a red spy, of course, which brings in, you know, the Russian operatives again. on the scene. Right. So, yeah, again, it's like this is Cold War era. And this is I think actually the Fantastic Four haven't hit it as hard at this point. But this is like. The first time we go into Russia and actually see, you know, their government sort of talking about the Hulk and that sort of thing.
1: Military police show up, Igor gets arrested, and in his cell, he has a he has a transistor under his fingernail to sell, send messages back to the USSR.
0: Which actually looks very cool. That's one of my favorite Kirby designs, yeah.
1: I like how Kirby draws his, like, circuitry. Mm-hmm.
0: The leader of this,
1: like, Russian cell is a guy called the Gargoyle, who's this big, lumpy, misshapen... Uh, kind of disfigured man who everyone you can tell all of his underlings are terrified of him and he decides that he hears about the hulk and he decides he needs to come like coerce the hulk into working for the ussr the gargoyle who i don't know why he's called the gargoyle like he should be called the hunchback he kind of looks like the hunchback of notre dame i don't yeah
0: it's possible they didn't know what a gargoyle was it
1: kind of that's (laughs) (laughs) that is true it kind of seems like that anyway the gargoyle loads himself into a rocket and fires himself at america uh and then parachutes down like directly on top of where the hulk is hanging out he, he shows up the hulk and rick jones are there and he uses a, a pistol with i think he calls them like slave pellets yeah maybe i'm inserting that He he just shoots them with this small gun that immediately like enslaves them to his will no explanation loads them back in takes them back to russia the hulk and rick jones as they like travel in this uh, rocket jet. The sun comes up. The Hulk turns back into Dr. Banner. The gargoyle, seeing that the Hulk is actually just a man, starts crying Mm -hmm. (laughs) and becoming really emotional at the the idea of somebody so, like a a monstrous figure, so disfigured, you know, turning back human because he himself is trapped in this, this hideous body. And Dr. Banner says that he can bathe him in radiation and turn him normal, but it might affect his brain. And the gargoyle agrees. Dr. Banner... Does a radiation surgery and turns him into a normal-looking man. <laughs> the gargoyle, the gargoyle wakes up and he's pretty normal-looking, and he immediately like stands up and looks at a, a picture of Khrushchev and starts yelling at it. Like, <laughs> 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 like starts yelling at it. You know that uh, you know he doesn't believe in his cause anymore.
0: He not only cures him of of his you know malformed looks, but he cures him of being Russian, which is <laughs> qu- quite the <laughs> yeah right yeah half.
1: yeah you just. He cures him of communism. Uh, He frees Dr. Banner and Rick to go back to the United States, and then he blows up his own base, presumably with him inside. But I'm sure this is not the last we see of the gargoyle.
0: Yeah, it's very it's very Mole um, Man-esque, really everything about it. Kind of like I was saying, you know, he's sympathetic. He's he's the the one who is kind of put upon much like the Hulk. um, And then it ends with an explosion of his base, (laughs) which is a familiar ending as well. Um, yeah, th- this gargoyle actually is is pretty infrequent, um, but he's an interesting Hulk number one. I think like you were saying, Hulk number one, you get the origin. You get the story. If you love origins, cool. It's not the best the Hulk would be. Um, and frankly, Hulk isn't one of the better early Marvel comics in my book. Uh, it definitely mm-hmm. starts as a monster comic. Um, it definitely starts as a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. You know, as soon as the sun goes down, here comes Mr. Hyde. Um, you know, and it's not, uh, it's not quite what you want it to be with Green Hulk and and all that, but he'll come. So this is Gray Hulk. They they do
1: play a little bit with the Hulk recognizes that he's a separate creature, like a separate entity from Banner because he looks at a a photo of Banner and like starts making fun of how like much of a weakling, uh, Dr. Banner is. Yeah. So I, I like a little bit of that establishing of like, they are separate and have a like somewhat antagonistic relationship with each other
0: yeah definitely so next on the list we had fantastic four number four and and then we'll go right into fantastic four number five um and this is basically taking us through may and uh in the summer of to or of 1962 so fantastic four number four is the return of namor the submariner On the cover. Uh, The issue begins with Johnny Storm has left the team because he uh, is mad at the thing making fun of him. And this is really where I want to say Ben and Johnny's antics kind of come into clearest form. They are constantly Mm -hmm. at each other's heels. They are bickering. This will become... A little more playful. I mean, here it's really just kind of angry. Like it's they're really mad at each other. And fantastic, they just
1: really destroy whatever environment they're in every time they.
0: Yeah, right. Like the cost of maintaining the Baxter Building must be insane with these two.
1: <laughs> we'll see the cost of that coming up in issue number nine.
0: Yeah, exactly. And um, and but yeah, so they're going back and forth. Johnny leaves the team, and basically, the beginning of the issue is the Fantastic Four trying to get Johnny back. On the team, uh, which Ben does by going and making fun of him some more and fighting him. <laughs> Good job, Ben. And <laughs> yep. as Johnny is sort of so he but Johnny decides, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to live <laughs> amongst the people on the streets. He finds like a uh, vagrant tent of of homeless individuals. And yep. he all the people there are talking about her, this bearded man who they say. You know, has OK,
1: powers. So Johnny's actually reading an issue oh yes the submariner comic from the golden age and he's like reading the the adventures of the submariner and then he looks up to see a bunch of people teasing a man who is the submariner with a beard looks like,
0: suspiciously like namor with a beard yes yeah yeah exactly
1: i like that these uh, all these vagrants are like teasing the submariner for being super strong they're kind of like look at this weirdo he's incredibly strong here tear this phone book in half and the submariner won't do it and they're like are you getting wise with me? Get him, boys. Yeah. And then they try to beat him up. And then he Submariner beats them up. It's like, this guy's incredibly strong. Let's provoke him.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not the best strategy. Uh, Johnny then is like, wait, no, he's not just a really strong random guy. Look at this. And he sh- proceeds to shave and give <laughs> Namor a haircut with his flame, which is... Yep one of my favorite panels of the year for sure yeah it's very funny um and it, and of course it then reveals a perfect namor who was around in marvel's golden age he's one of the first the submariner being one of marvel's marvel mystery comics first hero and uh and then namor basically once he sees who he is is cured of his amnesia which he has apparently been suffering
1: from. he's cured of his amnesia when johnny storm just picks him up and throws him in the ocean
0: oh the water <laughs> does it
1: you're right yeah yes we haven't actually said who namor is so namor is he's like a prince of atlantis who Half human, half Atlantean, who I think featured prominently in the Golden Age. He kind of just looks like an elf in a Speedo with winged ankles, uh, and he has. He's just basically super strong. That, that's, I think, his power. He's just uh, incredibly strong and. I, I don't know if he has underwater powers or he can command fish or something. But.
0: Yeah, he's more powerful in the water. Um, yeah, a little Aquamanish yep. in that sense. Yeah. Of, you know, he's, he's got all the powers of the ocean at his disposal. So the water reminds Namor of who he is. He then immediately wants to seek vengeance upon the people of the Earth. I, I think, too, like he can't find the people of Atlantis. They've moved in 20 years, I guess.
1: Yeah, Um, like Atlantis has been ruined by nuclear testing, and it's empty.
0: So he's, so he's, I would say, rightfully mad in that case. He releases Giganto, a giant water monster, and he starts, you know, attacking. And and of course, this brings the Fantastic Four to the rescue to stop Namor's assault on the surface world. And they fight Namor for a while uh, before Namor sees Sue Storm, the Invisible Girl, for the first time, and instantly. Falls in love, says she is the most beautiful face he has ever seen. I believe uh, the first thing he says to her is, will you marry me or something to that effect? If you will be
1: my bride, I might show mercy to the rest of your pitiful race.
0: Which is a huge, uh, huge proposition. And Sue, I think rightfully is like, how can I make that decision? Like, obviously. She kind
1: of almost is like, all right, I guess maybe. Well,
0: she's like, if it's for everyone, I guess. (laughs) Like, I have to support all of the people. Um, but, but ultimately, the rest of the team is like, no way. They fight Namor back to the water. The Fantastic Four win the day. But it does set up Namor as a returning villain here of the Fantastic Four. It sets up the romantic sort of um, never can be, but but maybe will be one day. Namor and Sue, you know, this sort of romance that shouldn't be. And, uh, and yeah, so that's going to bring us up to uh, Fantastic Four number five. This starts out
1: with I think my favorite splash page. The first page is Dr. Doom immediately establishing him as a really iconic villain. There's this picture of him hunched over a chessboard playing chess with figures of the Fantastic Four. There's like a vulture perched over him, this really freaky looking vulture. And there's there's books on the table that just read demons and another one that reads science and sorcery. They just do a really good job of immediately evoking like Everything about Doctor Doom is just summed up in this one picture. I, re- I really, really like it.
0: And that demons and science and sorcery stuff doesn't really come into play until a few years later that they would really explain that um, in an annual of Fantastic Four. So I, that's mm. a really interesting call out because at this point in time, you don't really know what doom's connection to those things are
1: i because i mean when i think of dr doom i think of him as reed richards who wants to dip his toes into the occult and i think that's that's my image of him and i don't know if that is from reading stuff that's slightly more modern occasionally or yeah yeah i don't know where that comes from
0: that's not unfair he's a master of science and sorcery definitely
1: so this starts out the fantastic four is hanging out Johnny Storm is reading the issue of the Hulk, like we mentioned. The Human Torch and the Thing are having get into another big fight. Uh, The Thing yells out, Skip the lecture, pal. I'm a big boy now. You know, Dave, like we haven't known each other that long, but uh, I am a big boy. And you know how you can tell that is Because I don't tell people that I'm, well, you know, shit, I guess I just told you that I'm a big boy. Uh, (laughs) Generally, the way you can tell a big boy is that they don't insist that they're a big boy all the time. You know, it's it's the more that you insist that you're a big boy, the more that you're clearly not a big boy.
0: Yeah. And this does speak to Ben's sense of humor, which is like, you know, he's constantly put upon. He's like, Reed, quit nagging me. Come on, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Doom... Gets in what looks like a a helicopter with a shark face on the front. Which I didn't realize Um, was
0: shark faced like the first three times I read this. And I only observed that this last time. I think it's only like one panel that makes that clear. Like It doesn't make sense why his helicopter would look like that, but it's awesome.
1: I mean, it's it's cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Doom flies his
1: helicopter over the Baxter building where the Fantastic Four are headquartered and puts a big net over the whole building to capture the Fantastic Four. And then Reed Richards sees him and, you know, recognize him as Dr. Doom, Otto Van Doom, and proceeds to tell his origin, which is that they were in school together. Dr. Doom was a scientist just like him, but he dipped his toes in the dark arts. It shows something like he had his head in some contraption and his assistant was like, are you sure you want to keep trying to contact the netherworld? And then The machine explodes, disfiguring Dr. Doom's face, which we don't see. It's all wrapped in bandages. And then Dr. Doom makes a trip to Tibet to study the mystic arts. This is something that I feel like comes up a lot. Tibet is synonymous with like mystical powers for Stan Lee uh, and I think Marvel Comics for a really long time. Like Doctor Strange in Tibet is a big thing. I know the Inhumans are in Tibet, right? Like, yet yeah, Tibet just seems—it's doing a lot of heavy lifting for the Marvel universe.
0: Yeah, it is kind of the go-to. Just, it, you know, <laughs> it's interesting in that in a Marvel universe where they invented Liberia, um, not not, you know, I think within this issue um, where Doctor Doom is the ruler of, uh, you know, why did they just like invent? A mystical land (laughs) why it's it's actual tibet that has all the mystical properties but yeah you're
1: right so uh dr doom um he he takes sue prisoner convinces the rest to come with him peacefully and he takes them back to his castle in latveria which is a fictional nation i don't know if it establishes that dr doom is the ruler yet but it's not important to this he tells them tells the fantastic four the three boys That in order to ensure Sue's safety, he'll release her if they use his time machine to go back in time and retrieve Blackbeard's treasures. Which they agree to because Dr. Doom is apparently... He's evil... But he's honest. Reassures everybody.
0: They're also standing on the time platform, um, which they do not realize and do not have a choice. Right. Yeah.
1: So he sends them back in time, basically become pirates for a while. The comic clearly shifts tones in this little swashbuckling adventure, and they have their fun with this this pirate tale. A bunch of a bunch of pirate battles ensue. And then it's revealed that in in their disguises, they've all dressed up like pirates and the thing has a big black beard on. And it's revealed that the thing going back in time is actually Blackbeard.
0: Which is a kind of a mind blowing twist as far as time travel is concerned. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) The
1: the thing relishes the opportunity to be this pirate king and tries to send back Reed and Johnny Storm alone. But ultimately a, a tornado sweeps them up and they all get pulled back together and they end up going back in time. Back forward in... Back forward in time.
0: Back to the future. Is that is that what you want to say? Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
1: They end up going back to the future, but they they leave the treasure behind. They fill the the chest with heavy chains to trick dr doom uh they show up or the chest is empty so much happens in these issues that we're trying to recap these but just so much happens in these and they they fly through so many plot points all at once it becomes kind of it all becomes a blur
0: you know let me jump off that because it's that's a really good point and one thing we really haven't talked about yet is we're reading these in again 2018 2019 these came out in 1962 the style if you're familiar with modern comics the style of these comics is so different they are Mm -hmm. dense in a way that comics today are not they have so much text and so much story frankly to them and they're all just about one and done you know, they all come out, and it's one single. What are they like? Twenty-six page mm-hmm. um, stories, and it's there's just so much to them. They flip through chapters essentially because they were trying to get kids flipping through the periodical on the newsstand oh, to think yeah, that there I were more to, than one story.
1: I wanted to bring that up is that I, yeah, it,
0: it's all one story, but every
1: twenty percent of the way through the comics, so every four or five pages. Begins a new chapter, even though it's you literally don't need to distinguish these as chapters. They're all one big story.
0: You don't need to, but I actually kind of like it when they're this long. Hmm. Like, it actually sets a nice little, like, okay, I'm at the next stage of this thing. Um, But yeah, these they take a lot longer to read, and they're a lot longer to go through. I mean, I find that it takes me about... 10 minutes, if I'm really savoring a modern comic, a modern superhero comic, it takes me about half an hour if I'm really reading one of these for the first time. If you're not uh, skimming, it's, yeah. it's about three times as long. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Jumping back in, I'm just going to uh, hurry through this. They get back, a fight ensues, standard Fantastic Four fighting um, with all their powers. They they escape Doom's Fortress flying away, I think in the Fantastic Car or they steal a helicopter or something. They, they light Dr. Doom's Fortress on fire. And as they're flying away, Doom is standing at the window, shaking his... Literally, he's shaking his fist out the window, saying, I hope he burns my fortress to the ground so that none will ever learn my many secrets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: You can't one-up Doom, which is awesome. He then proceeds to fly away in a jetpack, which he has, which is which is also fantastic. Uh, and again, I think this speaks to, like, they didn't necessarily know doom's castle would be back now doom happens to make an appearance in fantastic four number six so certainly they weren't that far off (laughs) this this actually
1: was this was probably one of the first issues i legitimately enjoyed it
0: Um, i think this is the best the artwork is really good action
1: design really works here the pacing is generally pretty good i mean the story is a little all over the place but like doom is an excellent villain here he really gets established right from the beginning who he is and uh Yeah, I I really enjoyed this one. I think this is the turning point. The the art really gets established here. So like previously, The Thing and Reed Richards both had this real like ape-like look to them. And they look, I mean, The Thing doesn't look human, but he doesn't look quite so mushy anymore. And The Reed looks more like a normal human being. I think I just said The Reed. (laughs) Reed Richards looks like a normal human being.
0: If he starts going by The Reed, I will not (laughs) be opposed to that. (laughs) That would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So this one's good. I like this issue a lot. I think if I was going to hand people two issues from from 1962 and say like, "Hey, read some early Marvel comics, see if you like them," it'd be Fantastic Four number five, the origin of Doctor Doom, and probably Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, which is the origin of Spider Man. Interesting.
1: I would have gone Fantastic Four number five, this one, and Journey into Mystery eighty three, mm, Thor's origin, which about you're about to talk to as much as I love Spider Man.
0: Yeah. So let's let's go into Journey into Mystery. So we're going to do two issues here that I included. So this is. The first, um, the first indication that My Marvelous Year will not just be 10 issues per per year, because that is nearly impossible to reduce Marvel Comics to. Um, mm-hmm. There will be 10 stories. In this case, we kind of go 10 and 11, lumping two Thors together. But you get issue number 183 of Journey into Mystery is the introduction and origin of Thor. And then issue number 185, you get uh, another Thor story, but in this case, you get the origin and introduction of Loki. So... Starting with issue number 183, you have the Stone Men of Saturn. They land on Earth, and it kind of begins looking just like one of these fairly familiar alien tales. They chase Dr.— What's that? A a little boring. Yeah, right. It's a little familiar. They chase Dr. Donald Blake into a cave. Oh, actually— He kind of just observes them.
1: Can I say something about the the Stone Men, which Mm -hmm. is—it's kind of just this generic, like a bunch of stone aliens show up. What I do like about the stone aliens is that before they encounter any humans— they just start like showing off their powers to each other. So like, it's just a bunch mm-hmm. of big like stone bros that land and one like <laughs> One rips a tree out of the ground. The other one just says like, oh, <laughs> to show how strong he is, he climbs to the top of a cliff and just jumps off to show that he can like, he's invulnerable. Yeah. Like, it kind of just reminds me, I mean, they just start flexing. It's like, uh, I feel like he's that guy at a party who's just like, hey, you want me to put the cigarette out of my arm? I'll do totally. it. Like yeah, totally. no, I'll do it. No big deal. I'm. T- no, that's all right. You don't need to put. No, I'll do it. I'll do it. You want me to do it? I'll do it. Yeah, I'm gonna do it.
0: <laughs> the stone men crush so many beer cans on their heads.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they. Yeah, like you said, they chase Doctor Donald Blake, who's this kind of puny-looking guy with a using a cane to walk.
0: He's frequently referred to as lame. Which yep. Uh, yep. I've come to come to learn means crippled, yep. in, uh, or, or with a limp, basically, is what this means in Dr. Don Blake's case. He is not just, like, lame. Yeah, yeah he,
1: <laughs> he he actually gets pie without the cane all right. Like, he needs it, but he loses it at one point and he's fine.
0: He seems relatively okay, honestly. Um, but, yeah, so they chase him into a cave, and he's, he's scared. Obviously, he's just seen aliens. But then he finds a big old stick sitting in the cave he picks it up to use as as sort of a cane and when it taps the ground am i do i have this right yeah when it yeah, taps yeah. the ground it turns or he turns into he taps the cane and it turns into a hammer and whoever so holds this hammer if he be worthy may contain or may have the power of thor do you tell and that did you say in, that from memory i i don't think i got the end right but yes okay pretty good okay <laughs> Um, So he turns into Thor and he realizes, you know, he is now the Thor of Asgardian mythology, which is, I think, pretty instantly like kind of a wild concept because he also sort of recognizes he's still Dr. Don Blake. So you have these Mm -hmm. two minds inhabiting the same body. And it's honestly, I always have. A hard time like kind of understand because it, it's been played with different ways throughout comics history you have thor where he's just thor like yeah. he's just the god of thunder but then you have it where he's dr blake who transforms into thor but mm-hmm. also realizes he's inhabiting the body of dr blake right? right but in this case it's like i'm dr blake and i'm thor at the same time it's he, he doesn't go
1: full thor he doesn't start talking in old english really. not entirely no yeah And it's an interesting concept because as someone whose main exposure to Thor is the Marvel movies, this is a pretty foreign concept. Like, those movies don't dabble at all in that he's really two people. Well, you know, Thor is Thor. He's just the Norse god. And here, it's a secret identity or kind of a dual identity.
0: Yeah, they've really done away with the the dual identity component of Thor for the MCU, which honestly I I think was a good call. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think simplifies muddy things, yeah.
0: Yeah, but in the in 1962 here, uh, everyone has a secret identity. Like every Marvel hero that is introduced, they all have secret identities for a very long time. I remember oh, thinking well, this. Except
1: the Fantastic Four, right? They're they're out. Oh, really good know? point.
0: Really good yeah, point. They yeah. are. Which they is, are which out. is
1: something that really sets them apart.
0: Yeah, it really does. It really does. Um, that's a really good point. But even like Iron Man, you know, MCU famously comes out as Tony Stark very quickly. Uh, yeah. That doesn't happen in the comics for an extremely long time. Yeah, actually. I was
1: surprised reading that. Iron Man, Captain America are both, both have civilian identities.
0: Yeah, Cap too, you would think, but but no. And, and Thor, Thor looks great here. He's
1: immediately like mm. super iconic, like drawn to model, like the Thor that you, know if you've read comics... Like, this is the Thor the comic that Thor, you know. Right, yeah, he's the, got
0: the big wings on the helmet. He's got the long, flowing blonde hair. Um, the the this chest plate,
1: the color palette. Like, everything is just spot on right from the get-go. Yes. It's great. Yeah. Yes.
0: This is a very good Kirby design to, again, reimagine Thor. Yep. But again, is not like... You know, the Hulk is a Marvel creation, Fantastic Four are Marvel creations. Thor is not a Marvel creation in the sense of this is actual mythology yeah. <laughs> that Stan and Jack are playing with. Right. But then they're reimagining it in the superhero genre. Um, but so in, in Journey to Mystery 183, once now, now he's got the powers of Thor. Um, Dr. Don Blake, he goes and he fights the Stone Men of Saturn. He forces them, and it's just a big classic Marvel brawl. He forces them to return to their home planet and stop invading Earth. Now it is, I will call out here, the Stone Men of Saturn might seem like a one-off. They do actually come back
1: in really? Planet mm-hmm. Hulk
0: in the 2000s. Oh, uh, right. Greg Pak, the writer, rehabilitates the, the Stone Men in kind of an interesting way that, uh, that Thor Ragnarok movie fans will recognize I was, as Korg. Oh, I was, about to, I was about to ask
1: about Korg. Yeah, yeah, Korg okay. is
0: a stone stoneman of Saturn uh, uh, Beautiful. breed. He is the
1: best MCU character.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's he's awesome. He's hilarious. So, so that's Journey into Mystery 183, the debut of Thor.
1: Well, there's one other thing I wanted to mention about Thor is the way that he draws... First, I think this is the first issue we've read where the action is actually good. <laughs> the action is engaging and it's clear what's happening and he's using his powers... In a really like striking way, like he's leaning into his powers immediately. He makes yeah. Thor's hammer seem like he sets up the rules of Thor's hammer. You know, he can't lose it for more than 60 seconds or he reverts back to Donald Blake. He can throw it, then draw it immediately back to him. And then they even establish that like he, he doesn't fly himself. He swings his hammer and then throws it and then clings to it as it pulls him off into the sky. Oh my God! The hammer pulls you off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that sixty-second time limit will become like that's that's a huge plot point yeah. throughout yeah, yeah. Thor's origins for for an extremely long time. So if you are already like, well, that's silly, get ready for a lot more of that yeah. <laughs> throughout the sixties. Yeah. Um, they were they're very big on like. And that's a good call out that like here they start setting term limits and and information a little more detailed. But like they're very big on that in the early days of Marvel of setting very specific, like he can't be away for a minute or like this thing lasts for exactly this long. (laughs) Sure. Um, And then it's a problem, you know, so it's
1: yeah, it's kind of fun. It's good. It it adds it adds some tension and, you know, he, he needs a weakness.
0: Exactly right. And his weakness is his, his mortal guise, obviously. Yep. So that brings us to Journey to Mystery number 185, which came out um, a couple months later. So you go from August to October. And 185 is the introduction of Loki, which is which is also actually very, very good, I would say. Uh, it's funny. It starts tying in Asgardian myth in a lot more um, interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So the, the story opens with Loki imprisoned inside of a tree. Where he has been, you know, exiled by the the Asgardian community essentially, and he is imprisoned here for, you know, bad behavior, as one yep. would expect from Loki God of Mischief. And in order to get out, he has to he has to have someone shed a tear. On his behalf, which no one would ever do because they all hate him, he's the worst, which is kind of funny. So what he does is he becomes one with the tree, and he shakes loose a leaf that pokes Heimdall, who we will know as the the great um, watcher of the bridge. It pokes him in the eye. And he, cry, he sheds a tear because- Yeah, he was, Heimdall's
1: just strolling past and a leaf hits him in the eye. Yeah,
0: which why he'd be strolling past this prison. So it defies defies logic to me, but sure, why not? And, and that's how Loki's like, ha, gotcha, I'm out of here. He leaves the tree and he immediately wants to seek revenge on Thor. So he seeks out where Thor might be. He finds him on planet Earth. It's been a long time since he's been there, he says. And uh, in this way, Loki returns to Earth to draw out Thor. So the way he gets Thor to actually come to him on planet Earth is he starts wreaking havoc on people. He turns people
1: into, like, negative people, which they just turn black and white. Thor shows up and starts spinning his hammer, and he was like, if I spin my hammer to create antiparticles and beam them into this— The combination of antimatter, like, it just immediately gets bogged down with a bunch of, like, mumbo-jumbo science terms that don't mean anything. But, yeah.
0: The comic book science is strong in this one, definitely. Yeah, he lures Uh,
1: lures Thor over.
0: Yes. And then then you get, like, really the remainder of the issue is a pretty fun Thor versus Loki fight. Um, Loki, he, the first thing he does basically is, like, put Thor to sleep and hypnotize him him. and tries to make him his, you know, his unwilling... um, slave essentially. Which Thor
1: will do anything that Loki says except put down the hammer.
0: He can't put down the hammer because they're basically there's some incantation with the hammer. Mjolnir, the Thor's hammer made of Uru metal, which is actually how mm-hmm. Loki tracks him because he's like, well, I just need to find the Uru. I have
1: Uru sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and basically Thor can't put it down because only Thor can hold the hammer. So what Loki does is he creates a projection of Thor for Thor to hold the hammer <laughs> to hand the just, hammer to
1: just a mirage of Thor and Thor's like oh Thor needs to have the hammer yeah and he hands it to the other Thor which is like I feel like it's like tricking your like your toddler into like leading him up to a mirror and convincing him it's another baby that he needs to share with
0: totally totally yes right like yeah if you've ever seen those videos like a cat seeing himself in the mirror for the first right, time yeah that's basically what Loki does to Thor here and it works Thor puts the hammer down. And of course, as we know, as readers, 60 seconds from now, that means Thor is going to turn back into Dr. Don Blake. Loki doesn't know this. He sends Thor into to rob a bank in a classic case of villains not keeping an eye on the hero. Thor transforms back into Don Blake and was like, well, that was weird. Loki's basically like, what happened to my man? Where's Thor? He can't find Don him. Don Blake
1: just wanders back aimlessly and is like, oh, I can probably pick up this hammer
0: and fix it. Yeah, he sees the hammer. <laughs> I don't even know if he recognizes, like, that it's his hammer. I think he's still kind of hip- hypnotized. No, he
1: doesn't, because a bunch of guys are, like, trying to pick it up, and they can't. And Don Blake's like, oh, let me get a shot at that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it establishes, you know, that only Thor, or only the Worthy, can pick up mm-hmm. the hammer, which is something that, you know, we know as as MCU and as comics fans. Um, But Don Blake picks it back up, and then he's Thor again, and then he proceeds to wallop loki as as loki deserves and he then ties him to the hammer and throws him back to asgard rather than fly there himself
1: (laughs) it's a really good detail and i i was reading this in less than
0: 60 seconds too because it has to be in less than a minute so thor has a cannon for an arm which i love
1: i i kind of wish they had played with this uh, in the mcu at some point i feel like they could have Work something like this into uh, Ragnarok. Of just like I would have loved to see Tom Hiddleston like tied to the hammer, flying through space. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, good stuff. So that is that's Thor's origin. Those, here.
1: those two are really solid issues.
0: I call out the ten most essential comics on the list. That doesn't mean don't read the rest. Like I think all these Fantastic Four issues are essential for Marvel diehards. I think Journey into Mystery one eighty four is well worth a read if you're enjoying them. But again, like we we shorten this so that you're not bogged down with an impossible reading challenge every month. You know, we try, that's like the whole point of My Marvelous Year is to curate and talk about the essentials. Uh, so again, like don't freak out and be like, what do I read 184? Yeah, if you want to read it. Um, and I'll, I've put together some some guides on comicbookcarol.com where you can see, like, the flow, yeah. the chronology. Yeah, yeah. Um, but honestly, at this point in 1962, like, it's release date oriented. You know, these these things don't cross over right. yet. Um, all
1: right. So uh, the next thing we read is Amazing Fantasy number 15, which some people might know as Spider-Man's Origins. Uh, and it starts out showing Peter Parker as this, like, 100-pound weakling his model isn't quite what it becomes. Like Peter Parker looks pretty different than what he uh, what he kind of morphs into later. He's a little thinner and just kind of more of a nerd.
0: He's a lot nerdier. He's kind of like real thin, um, which I think partly here is like we have to call out is the artistic style of Steve Ditko. And we've been reading a lot of Jack Kirby to this point, who's churning out Marvel Heroes mm-hmm. left and right with Stan Lee. But this is a Ditko creation um design style everything.
1: Yeah, I read I read that Stanley actually Kirby started to draw this and Stanley wanted him didn't want him to draw it because everyone looked a little too heroic and he wanted this to be more of like an everyman story.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard even less um less planned things too just like Kirby was overworked and Dicko was available <laughs> and had the style that fit it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that might be that might be, you know, a mm-hmm. kind of
1: myth at this point. Peter Parker's going around being like, really, he's kind of an intolerable nerd. He's walking around lording his intelligence over all the other high schoolers. Like, all the other high schoolers are interested in, like, you know, dating and cars and music. And Peter Parker's here trying to, like... There's a girl, I think she's on the arm of, like, a football player. And he's like, hmm, um, well, if you would like to join me for the science exhibit <laughs> this afternoon. Uh, and then, you know, they say, like, "Yeah, um, can it, nerd? And drive off and uh and then parker immediately starts like mumbling to himself like i'll remember that they treated me this way like
0: they'll be sorry someday they'll see they'll all see there's a little revenge of the nerds going on for sure with him um he is bullied i mean to his to to his credit he is bullied without provocation at times
1: he he is bullied hey, okay
0: <laughs> He's let me not just go just on the <laughs> record like
1: it is 2018 yeah. Bullying is a real problem and I think it deserves all the attention it gets and more like, and adults should do all they can to help teenagers, you know, understand the dangers of bullying. That being said, Peter Parker deserves to be held upside down and shaken for his lunch money and have his head dipped in a toilet.
0: He's got some of it coming. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I I think Spider-Man's my
1: favorite superhero, but he's, he's not likable in this first issue. But I, I think that's actually to a point. Because then he goes to the science exhibit. He gets bitten by the radioactive spider. Um, you know, there's some radioactive experiment going on. A spider walks through the beam, crawls off, bites him on the hand, and immediately dies. Peter Parker develops powers. He can jump super high. He's, he can stick to stick to walls. He can climb walls, climb wires. He's super strong. And his first inclination, because he is kind of this like marginalized nerd, is to finally get his. Right, so he goes out and tries to get some fame. He goes to a wrestling match uh, and wears a mask and beats up the Chopper Hogan. What, what's the guy's Crusher? name? Crusher? Crusher Hogan? Crusher Hogan. Yeah. Beats him up, wins some cash money, I think. He goes home and... He develops some web shooters in one panel. He goes from like, hmm, I think I'll need some some equipment. And then the next panel, he has his web shooters. So the development of web shooters is immediate. Yeah, the
0: speed of the origin here is he designs his costume and web shooters in a single night, <laughs> which, <Yeah>. which defies credulity, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but it is kind of to show his genius and also his yep. design sense, which is incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's worth pointing out, uh, Peter Parker doesn't have parents. He lives with his like elderly aunt and uncle, Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Who both dote on him. um but They actually, I think, the like one of the narrators says something like, "Despite being disliked at school, his uncle Ben thinks the world of him, which is like a real consolation prize. Maybe you're not popular with the kids, but your grandpa still loves you." Yeah, he's got he's uh, got a nice,
0: loving but... family. Is the point? His anime makes yeah. him his yeah, favorite wheat yeah. yeah, cakes exactly. every morning. You know, so exactly. It's, it's supposed to show where he is loved, I think.
1: <laughs> right, and and what's important to him because he doesn't really. He kind of talks about he's got all these powers and the world can go sit on it, but he, basically his aunt and uncle are the only people he cares about. He goes to uh he starts getting on TV, starts making all these TV appearances, really milking his powers for everything they're worth. And while he's backstage, is this actually backstage or am I confusing this with the movie? No,
0: it well so this is where it differs from the movie in ways that I'm honestly I like I'm surprised by every time I read it. So In the Spider-Man movie, the same Raimi version in the early 2000s, Spidey, he does his wrestling match, he goes to get paid, and he gets stiffed by the guy who's running the promo, and then he's backstage, Mm -hmm. and he sees the criminal run by, and he doesn't help because he just got, you know, I think the the quote, the Tobey Maguire line at the time is like, it's not my problem, which is what the promoter had just said to him, not paying him. And in this version, he actually, he's backstage, but he didn't go to get paid. He doesn't get stiffed by no.
1: anyone there. He just doesn't care that that's leaning into like Peter Parker before this was just like the world was cruel to him and he doesn't owe the world anything. And he's not willing to.
0: Yeah. Help. And the, the police officer calls him out. He's like, why didn't you help? Like, all you had to do was stick out your leg or something. You could have tripped him, um, which is I don't know that that's really what a police officer should say (laughs) to to, a (laughs) yeah but Peter Parker's basically like it's not my problem man and he didn't really have a good reason aside from just his general spite
1: which I think is interesting I think like it is somewhat interesting that he starts out kind of a a jerk right I mean he's a jerk I I think as a nerd he gets he gets picked on but the way he reacts to it is pretty like pretty negatively yeah and then he carries that into being spider-man so like he he's not a hero he doesn't care about other people he's in this for himself so then he he goes home and finds out that while he was gone there was a home invasion and his uncle ben was shot by the invader and the police like tell this teenager where (laughs) where the criminals hold up like down in some warehouse uh he vows revenge he swings off on his uh his web shooters to this warehouse and finds out that the criminal who killed his uncle ben was the very one that he just let pass by without stopping him and realizes that he could have stopped this if he had just you know cared for someone besides himself and there we get kind of Spider Man's the the crux of Spider Man's entire um ethos.
0: Yeah, and you actually have Stan Lee ending the or I should say the the narrative caption at the end is the famous with great power must come great responsibility tagline, which is often attributed yeah, to not Uncle ben. characters. Right. No, you know, Uncle Ben, Uncle for ben example.
1: or Voltaire. Yeah, yeah,
0: but in this case, um it's it's actually just a narrative caption in this issue that'll get changed later. Um yeah. but yeah, so it's it's really effective. I think, you know, kinda we talked about the the um the twilight zone style twist comics that lee and dicko were working on uh it has that sort of structure to it but then fit in within the superhero genre which i think is what makes it so effective you know it is kind of a classic morality tale and that's like oh if you scorn the world here's what could happen to you if you don't help out um and it 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 drives the sense of shame and guilt that will be sort of part one a of spider-man 1b will come Mm -hmm. in the in the early 70s um but it drives his sort of motivating factor throughout uh his his career i think this is one of i think spider-man's
1: origins are some of the more interesting of the marvel universe but i don't think this is a particularly good issue (laughs) that so i think he has the the bones of a really good like theming of his character are here but i actually think the art kind of lets it down like the the art here of spider-man and Peter Parker remind me of, like, if you go look at, like, early Simpsons or early Calvin and Hobbes or Garfield, where they look pretty different. Like, the, the model for Spider-Man just looks a little a little loose, and, like, they just haven't quite nailed it. The, the actual action is a little sloppy. I think that the idea behind Spider-Man's origins is really strong, but I don't think this first issue really um, holds that up. As well as the the idea itself. Yeah,
0: I think it, it kind of touches on what I was saying earlier. I think it's a good origin. Um, I mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. I think origins are often not you know the best stories. Spider Man will will have much better comics. I would say Fantastic Four and Spider Man dominate the '60s for me. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Really, if you're if you're a Marvel Comics fan getting into these and you're you're comfortable reading Silver Age material, like it's fun for you, then uh, you wanna read every Fantastic Four Spider-Man appearance from this time period because they're all yep. the, really the best. Um Steve Dicko's on the, the title from Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. It will then launch in sixty three to Amazing Spider-Man number one, and Dicko will be on for about, I think, thirty-eight issues, I wanna say. And all those are really essentials in the Marvel Canon.
1: I'm looking forward to getting into it.
0: So next on the list is Tales to Astonish number 35. This one we include because it is the uh, first cover appearance and first full real story of Ant-Man, AKA Dr. Hank Henry Pym. Uh, he actually debuts in Tales to Astonish number 27, which is much earlier okay. in the year. Uh, that story is, I think it's called the man in the anthill. And uh, it, it, is the origin of Hank Pym. He develops this serum that turns him that allows him to go super small. He then is able to communicate with ants. You kind of get all that, but it's really in the style of one of those um those earlier non-superhero genre comics and I think is often mm-hmm. deemed like semi-inessential as a result. So that's why we jump to number 35 here cuz this is where you really get uh Pym as a like a hero of a sort. Um, This one is probably, and we talked about the Hulk being, you know, very, uh, very cold war and Russia spies um, trying to get to him. This one is probably the most cold war oriented in that uh, you have Russian spies are are all over this lab. Pim's working in, he's working on an anti-radiation formula. So they send some spies to go and get this from him as they're doing so, they take Pym's lab assistants hostages, but Pym, of course, escapes by going into Ant-Man mode, and he puts on his costume and his helmet, which allows him to communicate with actual ants. He doesn't drink it, which I actually found surprising. I just sort of assumed that was how the formula. He, he was literally
1: taken. he just pours the vial out onto his own wrist. And that's it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. which is interesting. I could see like he's probably just got carpet like constantly shrinking as the stuff spills onto the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But his costume does, I would call out, they they make a point of saying his costume has unstable molecules, which I found interesting mm-hmm. because that's yeah. typically associated with the Fantastic Four's costumes. Reed develops okay. these unstable molecules so that, you know, the, the torch can burst into flame or Sue can turn invisible without, you know, losing their clothes every time. And Pym mm-hmm. uh, somehow has that. So there's the implication that either the, he created it they both created it, or that Pym and Richards have been in communication. Now, as the shared universe is only really coming together at this point, it's it's really just using the same language. But if you're if you're a Marvel nerd, there's a no prize here for figuring out, you know, how to create (laughs) these molecules. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the science in this I I actually I, I thought this issue was pretty dull. Yes. There's no characterization. There's no greater theming to it. It's just Dr. Pym has this formula to turn himself into an ant. He finds out how to communicate with ants. Russian spies break into his lab. He turns into an ant, fights them off. The end.
0: Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Ant-Man's not my favorite really ever. Um, they will get more interesting. I think Pym gets a lot more interesting as a character when, when the Wasp appears, when Janet Van Dyke yeah. comes onto the scene, definitely. Um, but at this point, he's he's the most... Typical or formulaic of the Marvel heroes that have been introduced to this point. It's
1: just the entire like Hank Pym is a non-entity in this issue. He could literally be anyone. He's just kind of a blank slate for the like the concept of turning into the size of an ant. Yes, to lay on. There's, there's not really much more than just like the superpower here, and that's that's all there is to it.
0: Well, and I think it actually highlights what makes the rest of 1962's creation so successful because you have mm-hmm. so much internal strife. With the other creations, Uh, in Fantastic Four, you have all this family fighting and the dynamics of the team making mistakes and feeling guilty and being mad at one another, Um, Mm -hmm. but then also coming together and fighting together, or Spider-Man, which we just talked about in great detail, and all of his internal strife and, and frankly, his deeply flawed character. And half dealing with just teenage problems, half dealing with superhero problems and the
1: balance, the the work-life balance of spider-man
0: exactly um and then at least with like hulk and thor you just have these these science fiction concepts that really stand out and with Pim, it's like he doesn't have any of the internal strife at this point um there's nothing really to latch on aside from literally the concept which is he can get real small
1: th- yeah this actually brought into relief what what i think makes a successful origin or not and that's whether or not it, it's not about necessarily about the quality or the how interesting the superpower is it's really about like the the theming. of It's either about the character or the theming of what the powers do to that character that make it immediately engaging or not. Because you could, I mean, th- that's kind of the thing with the Hulk and Pym. Something just happens to them. Their personality doesn't play too much into it. It's just kind of an everyman story.
0: Yeah, I would say the difference with the Hulk, though, is he has to deal with what he's done sure, and what right. he's transformed into, yeah. like Bruce Banner does, whereas Pym... He never, like, comes out of it thinking, like, oh, man, it was real weird when I was small. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have those internal debates. Yeah. I,
1: I also think the science in this one is has not held up. He, trying to communicate with ants, uh, talks about his theory how they, they talk. They use their antennae to speak to each other using, like, electromagnetic waves, which is not yeah. true. And then also, at one point, he commands the ants to, like, jam somebody's gun. And they all climb in and deposit honey, which does the writer think that ants make honey because that's kind of how this reads
0: you're telling me they don't <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right dave uh so <laughs> last issue we read fantastic four number nine uh it starts out with namor the submariner who we met back in number four um yep. he's in his underwater atlantean lair watching tv which is very good he also has a framed photo of sue storm nearby and uh he great design all around in yeah. his in his living room i do love those Those touches. Yeah, they're good. And he's watching a news report saying that the Fantastic Four has gone bankrupt and cut to the Fantastic Four dealing with bankruptcy. I don't know if this was brought up in a previous issue or if this is just plopped down here. I think it starts here. Okay. So the Fantastic Four has lost all their money. They're losing the Baxter building and all the inventions that Reed has made, the the rocket ship, the Fantastic Car, all these things they're selling off to to pay for all their debts because Reed lost all their money on the stock market. And Reed uh, is
0: terrible at stocks, it <laughs> turns out. <laughs>
1: right. Um th- this is funny because they're all standing around trying to find figure out ways to make money. I like the line Johnny Storm says, there must be some way I can cash in on this fiery body of mine. <laughs> 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 I think this was about a decade before Midnight Cowboy came out, so yeah, that was not you, uh, you don't have to wear the red <laughs> dress tonight, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh I think it's weird that they're going bankrupt, but I like that this is a marker of them dealing with like a mundane problem, right? I think that that is like something that these comics, they excel often when they deal with stuff that is slightly more down to earth, that they're dealing with more human problems than just constant cosmic threats. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate that gesture. I don't know if it fully works, but I, I like that that this is something they're folding in.
0: It's harder to pull off with the Fantastic Four because mm-hmm. you've got like you have all these right. repossession agents come to the Baxter Building and they're looking through all the inventions and they're like, "Oh, we're going to take your spaceship apart piece by piece." When it's like Reed, just sell the spaceship. Like this thing's got to be worth right. a gazillion <laughs> dollars, you know. Like so, it's it's less plausible with them. Always, I do find it kind of fun. It it speaks to I think uh points and themes that that marvel and and stanley and jack would want to hit that would get hit better in spider-man because it's a lot easier i think spider-man is
1: the 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 golden standard for balancing like the civilian life troubles with the superhero troubles
0: yeah yeah so you can see him trying to do that here and again with this team it's just like well that's kind of silly like (laughs) you know it doesn't make a lot of sense speaking of silly yeah
1: the Fantastic Four, Reed Richards finds out that he has an offer for a million dollars if they'll just shoot a movie right. in Hollywood, which will get them out of all their financial problems. So they fly to Hollywood to SM Studios and they walk into the office of Submariner, who has bought a movie studio and is <laughs> using it to lure the Fantastic Four in. You know, their, their ha- hackles are raised, but they decide to play along because he seems on the up and up that <laughs> he wants them to shoot a movie. Uh, long story short, Namor the Submariner lures them each into basically a trap everyone except for sue storm so he drops reed on an island where he has to fight the cyclops uh he he puts the human torch in africa i think with a bunch of like vague tribes you know this kind of catch-all term for tribal people who have a potion (laughs) a potion that makes them invulnerable to fire Uh and then he namor himself fights the thing and like subdues him I think he pounds him under the sand in the water. <laughs> uh, and then back in his office, he basically says, like, now that the rest of the Fantastic Four is gone, like, will you marry me, Sue? <laughs> <laughs> right. And she says she says something that's funny. She says something like, oh, like, well, maybe if you had just asked. Like, she, she brings up basically, like, if you hadn't manipulated us like this, like, maybe the answer would have been different, but no. <laughs> and then the rest of the Fantastic Four have him fought their way out of each of these traps, burst in, stop the Submariner. Oh, they actually start to fight the Submariner and Sue stops them and says, like, it's not fair, guys. You've never teamed up on anyone three to one before. Yeah. Like, have some honor, which is a a weird point because their composition is literally their team of superheroes.
0: Well, and it's also not, I really don't think that's true because most villains they fought to this point are are singular. (laughs) Like, they're constantly teaming up on people.
1: Yeah. anyway so they they subdue the submariner and he I, I think actually they just uh convince him he goes back to atlantis and the whole thing is yeah they're on. like
0: just go go chill we'll deal with you later
1: there, oh there's something i missed i think this is actually the issue that introduces alicia masters who is um a blind woman who is friends with ben Grimm, which is you know kind of thematically appropriate like he's this big ugly creature she has affection for him despite that, but she can't actually see him. So this is, they don't do much with it this, but it's worth establishing that he does have this kind of friendship slash love interest uh, in Alicia. Who's this blind woman.
0: And she's really important Uh, for Ben because, you know, we talked about him being bitter and angry throughout most of 1962. And she does start to temper that where he then kind of has a softer side. He has someone, an outlet essentially for being himself um, and not worrying about, you know, being quote unquote gruesome. So, yeah,
1: there's one other thing in this comic that uh, I think illustrates something about Stan Lee's writing and how verbose it is through all this. Mm Because we talked about this. These issues are long. They're filled with a lot of text. And I I think part of my problem with them is that he, you know, I mean, they're they're right. They're kind of writing some of these rules as they're going along and establishing the rules. But he breaks that kind of Cardinal rule of show, don't tell. Because he definitely tells a lot. There's there's a big splash page of the Thing fighting Submariner. They're on the beach mm-hmm. wrestling. Both of them are talking to each other, like talking about what they're doing. You, you can see that they're fighting. You They talk to each other about fighting. And then the narrator says, Despite the superhuman efforts of the steel-muscled Submariner, the rampaging Thing makes one last Herculean effort as he exerts every last ounce of his unbelievable strength to remove Namor from the source of his power. Just this this it's it's just too much (laughs) you know he loves his adjectives he loves his exclamations
0: yeah it's it sets a tone it's if if you're reading these with the with the um the the haze of nostalgia it's kind of fun but it's definitely a constant it's a common complaint i should say amongst readers today i think it actually reads
1: it's something i thought before I think it reads like he's still viewing things from the viewpoint of radio serials, right? Because it sounds mm-hmm. like the narrator a uh, radio serial would be doing. He doesn't quite trust the visuals to do the heavy lifting and he needs to actually write out what's happening.
0: Yeah, I like Stan's dialogue a lot because he he gets snappy patter back and forth. He has these he has a sense of humor and jokes that I really enjoy, even if they don't land yep. with like pop culture references that I don't get today. Um, but his his narrative captions are definitely sure. the most skippable part of the comic, and just comics had not and would not for a long time reach a point where they'd be comfortable yeah. just letting the action speak. Yeah, you know, letting Kirby's art tell the story here is really not something that would happen for quite some time.
1: So that's uh, that's all we read for this batch. Do you have any any closing thoughts about this this year?
0: So one thing I wanted to do before we get to our our 1962 recommendations. Uh, was just kind of say, like, in general, you know, this is Marvel year one, I would say if you're if you're in this for the long haul, you're like, yeah, I want to do my marvelous year, I want to join this reading club and read everything. Um, And you're a little weary after year one, thinking like, ooh, this isn't necessarily what I expected, you know, some good origins here, but these comics aren't aren't necessarily great. They do get the stories keep getting better. Right, like I think it's really important to call out. Like this is this is the rookie year of of what this universe would be. Nineteen sixty three is going to have a ton more hero introductions. Series are going to really start taking off, and by the time we hit the mid sixties,
1: even from the beginning, Fantastic Four number one versus Fantastic Four number nine is a world of quality difference. So, like even yeah. even in this year, you can see them really hitting their stride in certain ways.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so these things really start to take off, and and they were taking off like in terms of. Uh, readership in the moment, you know, you have fans all of a sudden like really latching on. I think mm-hmm. that's why, you know, that's why Hulk number one launches as a solo. Um, that's why Amazing Fantasy goes from Amazing Fantasy to Amazing Spider Man, is Marvel, Stanley, publisher Martin Goodman. Like they realized they had something mm-hmm. special developing or at least the potential for something special and the the stories and the artwork will will reflect that and again like next year you know we'll we'll include in the show notes the list of the comics that we want to read but we're going to see like the x-men come onto the scene right we're going to see um like the avengers i believe no no, that's next year that's another year uh that's next year okay yeah so there's like there's all sorts of good stuff coming um so i would say stick with it um and and there's gonna be some really good stories
1: something i wanted to to mention with this and this is probably going to be a through line throughout is that if you look at what is happening politically and culturally at the time stanley is definitely viewing things through a very particular lens not to say that like these are particularly political comics but when he does invoke politics or you know the kind of the backdrop of politics with these he's very focused on certain things so he's very focused on kind of the red scare he's focused on nuclear weapons and the commies. I mean, it's a lot of just worrying about the communists. But 1961, 1962, that was the year of the Bay of Pigs, the Freedom Riders protests, the House Committee of Un-American Activities, the construction of the Berlin Wall. There were enormous anti-nuclear protests happening at this time. Uh, The beginning of Vietnam War was happening. And a lot of that just, you know, you, you don't see any of that. I mean, not that these comics really leaned into that a lot you you can kind of tell where Stan Lee's, like i guess you can just see that this is through a lot of one man's lens
0: yeah and the, they'll start to reflect i think the the contemporary political climate more as the 60s yeah. develop you know yeah. like there's a, there'll be an amazing spider-man issue that deals with campus protests yep. and and you know it's just sort of like the political ongoing
1: black panthers coming up
0: and black panther you know coming in the mid 60s so it's like there's a lot of stuff that's going to come yeah i think to your point you know it's definitely it's softer mm-hmm. At this early stage, Um, Stan probably, you know, he's not, first off, he's not like a celebrity at this point. Like he'll become Stan Lee that we all know as the decade develops and become this sort of showman and spokesman for the company and the publisher. But right now it's kind of, you know, it's feeling it out. So it's a little safer, space race, Cold War. You know, again, it's like, like you said, like House of Un-American Activities, we're not that far removed from McCarthyism and the scare of communism where you you don't want to be accused of being too sympathetic, yep. right? So that's why these come off so ham-fisted, I think, with that type of topic is like, that's how you had to approach right, it Right, you don't want to be blacklisted, yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: So next week's episode will be released on January 14th and will be a listener response episode covering all the comics that we talked about today. Since this is our first episode, you won't have as much time as usual to get your responses in, but we'll try to include everything we get before this upcoming Friday, uh, which is the 11th. You can reach us at mymarvelousyear at gmail.com, and uh, we're looking for your thoughts about Marvel Comics from 1961 to 62, just the ones we talked about today. Um, Just anything you found interesting, or that we may have missed, or that you disagree with, just... Your general thoughts about the comics. Uh, you can also email us with feedback or suggestions for the show. After the listener episode, we'll be jumping back into it and talking about the comics of 1963. Yes. Uh, this time, we're going to split the year into two episodes. Part one will be released January 21st, and part two on January 28th. You can find the list of the specific issues we'll be reading at mymarvelousyear.com uh, in the show notes for this episode or in our weekly email that we will send out to our Patreon backers. If you have thoughts about those issues from 1963, please send us those by January 28th. Totally. Speaking of Patreon, if you're enjoying the show and would like to help support us, you can go to patreon.com forward slash mymarvelousyear. Every little bit helps us cover the cost of the show, and eventually will go towards us expanding the amount of content we can release. And we have some pretty fun rewards for people who help us out. Speaking of which, we're doing a poll for each Marvel year we cover on Patreon. So the poll this week is, in 1961 and 1962, which Marvel superhero had the strongest debut? Thor, Fantastic Four, Ant-Man, The Hulk, or Spider-Man? Head over to Patreon to find out how to cast your vote, and we'll read the results next episode. Uh, We have a Twitter and an Instagram account at Year. For each Marvel year we cover, Dave and I will be choosing our favorite panel and posting it on the Instagram page. So if you're a $3 backer of the Patreon, you have a chance to be one of the five backers I'm going to randomly choose to pick their favorite panels of the year for us also to post on the My Marvelous Year Instagram account. And since we're just starting out, rating and reviews on iTunes are huge for us to gain visibility and grow, and mm-hmm. we really just appreciate the gesture. I'm looking forward to see seeing what people think about the show. Uh, you can check out Comic Book Herald, which is Dave's website, for the full list of My Marvelous Year, as well as like a million other reading lists. It's really great. It's really comprehensive. If you want to get into comics, there's no better way to have him kind of be your sherpa through it. Aw, oh,
0: thank you. Yeah, yeah, no problem.
1: Our opening and closing theme is Children's Sport by Disasterpiece. You can check out his work at disasterpiece.com. So that was
0: 1962. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next year. See you next year.